Grace and peace to you in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're finally through Genesis. The lectionary has taken us through there for the last nine or ten weeks. We've been introduced to God. We've been introduced to how God created. We've been introduced to the people that God will deliver the gospel message through over the course of many, many years. We see the beginnings of this people. And in your bulletins this morning, you received a handout that gives a visual illustration of this. It started with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And now through Jacob, we have 12 sons. These 12 sons will become 12 tribes. And these 12 tribes are Israel. And in Israel, we have a new faith. The beginning of a faith. Genesis is the beginning of so many different things, not just the creation of the world, but the creation of a faith that is bound, that is drawn out of God's revelation to humanity. And so we're done studying the foundations. Now we move into Exodus. Exodus literally translated means mass departure or an evacuation. Last week we celebrated the fellowship between Israel and Egypt. This week we study how that all fell apart. The original Joseph and the original Pharaoh have died. A relationship that was originally started in appreciation for one another and mutual respect has devolved into slavery. The new Pharaoh is threatened by the Israelites and so he enslaves Israel. We learn that the Israelites are in 400 years of captivity. For 400 years, the Israelites' cries have ascended to God's ears. He hears those cries, and he sends salvation. You know, to call on God's name, his name is no small thing. Today's psalm reads, our help is in the name of the Lord. We don't tend to think much about names in our culture. They're just ways that we distinguish one person from another. I'm Adam. You don't read any thought or any meaning into that name other than that's just what my name is. That's how you distinguish me from Dan or Barb or anybody else. The name isn't explanatory. The name doesn't say anything about me other than I am this person, I'm not that person. Well, this isn't so in the Hebrew language. In Hebrew, a name is designed to, at least in some part, explain something about that person. And so in today's Old Testament lesson, we learn that Moses is named Moses because he was drawn out of the water. Moses literally translated means draw out. And we'll see over the coming weeks how this name, how this description is so appropriate for Moses. But to call on the name of the Lord is slightly different. It's different because there is no description about the Lord that can give a more full understanding. To call on Yahweh, to call on the Lord, is to make the ultimate call. There is nothing, no word, no description that can give us a better understanding of who God is than how he has revealed himself through Scripture. And how he has revealed himself is self-fulfilled, self-contained. There's nothing descriptive that gives better description of who he is than who he really is. 
I am who I say that I am. And that is all that we can say about God. And so Yahweh, Lord, stands on its own. It's funny how the Lord helps us. You know, very rarely does God approach us in thunderbolts or through voices from the heavens or anything along those lines. It's what we expect of the God of the universe, but that's not the way that God tends to operate. In Moses, the Lord helps us by sending a Hebrew baby from the tribe of Levi. This baby floats down a river in a thatch basket and will eventually be the instrument of God's grace to the Israelites. He used Noah, a drunk, a drunk, to build an ark for the continuation of the human race. He used water to cleanse the world of wickedness. He used David, an adulterer and a murderer, to lead Israel. He sends himself in the form of a baby, taking on flesh to save the world. He used Peter, a traitor, to establish his church. He uses Paul, a man who was actively persecuting Christians to lead Gentiles to faith. He uses water in our baptism. He uses bread and wine and words on a page in order to convey grace to us today. God uses lowly things and broken things to send help to us. And it's wonderfully reassuring in a way, isn't it? That God doesn't have to use mighty things, great things, in order to convey his love to us. But he can take the things that are seemingly of low stature, of unimportance, insignificance, and turn them into things that convey his love to us. And make no mistake, Moses is lowly in today's Old Testament lesson. He's a slave child, born an Israelite, not raised as an Israelite, but born an Israelite. By birth, he is a lowly, lowly person of stature in today's lesson. But he arrives in the arms of Pharaoh's daughter in a thatch basket while floating down the Nile River. And from these modest beginnings, grow a work of God's grace into the life of the Israelite people that we still recognize and celebrate today. You know, it's easy to think of Moses the leader. Moses standing before Pharaoh. Charlton Heston Moses, bold and brave. But before we get Moses, the reluctant leader, we have Moses, the helpless babe. He's a Hebrew child delivered into Egypt to overcome the slavery of Egypt. Little could anyone have known at that time that this child would lead thousands out of captivity and toward a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And even after he grows up, after he grows into maturity, Moses is nothing special. We learn that he stutters, he stammers, he's not a good communicator. The least likely of all vessels to stand before the highest power in the land of Egypt and say, free the slaves. 
Moses was of no account. He was of lowly account. He was of few skills and abilities. But he had one skill. He had one ability, and that's all he needed. He was open to listening to God and being used by God. And what about Peter? God uses a fisherman to build the church. (laughs) How many of you have seen the deadliest catch? Deadliest catch. What are the fishermen like on there? You got Captain Phil, Captain Keith. Are they are they wise? Uh, what we would would perhaps consider educated men, fit to lead a church, to lead an entire group of people, to better know God. Well, no, not as we see them on TV. As we see them on TV, they're cussing, smoking, scotch drinking. They're hard living people. They're rough people. These are fishermen. And this is Peter. He's a Captain Phil or a Captain Keith. He's the kind of guy who chops the ears off soldiers who come and improperly accuse his friend, Jesus. This is the Peter that we're introduced to not the sanitized apostle that we often think of. But Peter has one thing going for him. One thing going for him. He knows who Christ is. And when asked directly by Christ, who do you say that I am, what's his answer? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus then proclaims, you are Peter, which literally translated means rock, And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, without getting into a lot of debate about what all that means in that particular passage, let's just cut to the chase and agree on this. The church was built on Peter because of Peter's faith and for no other reason. Without the faith of Peter, the person of Peter is worthless. On this, I believe all Christians, regardless of background, can agree. It is the faith that Peter professes in Christ. It is the understanding of who Christ is. It's the good confession and the willingness to say it that makes Peter's faith and his entire person valid. And so Peter's happily ever after, right? Well, no. Just days after making the good confession, Peter renounces Christ, claims to have never known him. Peter's not a finished product. He's a flawed man given a divine mission, but he doesn't even know that all that is implied by that mission. Both Peter and Moses, over the course of many years, will grow into their faith. Peter will lead the church. Moses will lead the Israelites. How? How does this transformation take place? Well, Paul, in today's epistle lesson, gives us a glimpse of how this work works. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation is a heart and mind change. It's not just the tinkering a little bit. It's a complete new way of seeing the world. Moses goes from seeing himself as a stuttering, incompetent Israelite to seeing himself principally as an instrument of God. And that is his identity. Peter, always the strong fisherman, 
goes from seeing himself as the person who doesn't have the bravery to stand up for Christ to the man who stands before thousands and proclaims Christ to the world. He extends it beyond the Jewish faith and takes it into the Gentiles as well. And then Paul, the writer of today's epistle lesson, is transformed into the apostle of the Gentiles even as he was persecuting Christians prior to his conversion. Like them, like every single one of them, our transformation comes in the name of the Lord. And understand when I say the name of the Lord, I'm not just talking about verbally expressing facts about him. But to profess the name of the Lord is to profess our identity in him, our love for him, and our desire to have life in God. And this is why God gives us a family. A family that extends as far back as those original 12 that comes forward today and preserves preserves the name of the Lord, gives witness to the name of the Lord so that future generations will be able to take on that name for themselves and then express it to the world, to their children, and to the following generations. This is why we worship as a family, not just as individuals. As a family of God, the new Israel, we preserve We express, we offer to each other the name of the Lord as often as we come together, as often as we can meet. We call on the name of the Lord as a community to learn to be in the presence of the Lord. We learn as a community of believers to rest in God through our worship as a way of living, not just something that we do as an activity to tack on to other activities, but as a way for us to learn together what it means to be transformed by God. I've noticed that people often think of what happens in our worship as something that fills us up to go back out there. No, that's, that's really not what worship is. Worship isn't designed to aid our other ambitions in life. Worship is ultimate. Worship is our highest calling. Worship of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the person of God. Worship of him in spirited truth is the highest thing, the highest thing that we can do. And so whatever our response is, however God has transformed us through worship, and however we carry that worship into our daily application, It is worship that is the high point, is the entire point to the Christian life. In here, in our worship on Sunday, as a community of believers, our worship as a people who are committed to the body of Christ, here is where we're becoming a people of Sabbath rest. And by Sabbath rest, I mean that God is teaching us to rest in him. And so the patterns, the life, the people that we become in here help us to give meaning to what happens out there. 
The problem with focusing on out there and seeing out there as the point and seeing in here as something we either tack on or we use in order to get us through out there is that we're allowing the world to tell us what is truly meaningful. Worship is designed for us to come into relationship with God in such a way as a community and as individuals. But it's intended to fill us in such a way that we can assign the meaning God has for the world around us rather than allowing the world around us to assign meaning to what we do. And this is why worship is ultimate. Worship is where we come into contact with God. Worship is where God transforms us, changes us on the inside, and begins to show us how he views the world, how he sees the things around us. And so we cannot begin to look at worship as something that is a small thing. Worship. And I'm not just talking about Sunday morning worship, but Sunday morning worship is certainly included in that. Worship as a community of believers is teaching us what it means to see the world as God really sees it. Because he changes us. And when God changes us, we are changed for the world. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And that name contains power. Just like Moses, Paul, Peter, David, all of the people we've talked about today, there is no other place for true Sabbath rest than the name of the Lord. We rest in him through the worship of him. And so let's commit our worship to proclaiming his name, proclaiming his power, his power to change us, his power to make us a new people, his power to make us into a people who see the world for what it really is because we see ourselves as we are really are and we are really meant to be in relationship with him. Let's be committed to receiving his rest through our sacrifice of worship and let's be committed to growing into a people of God for no other reason than that's who we're called to be. God will use us as he changes us. But let's never get the cart before the horse. We have to become a people of God before we can be one bit of good to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given us a family. And I thank you that you have given us a family through the ages that has been principally committed to calling on your name And it is through your holy name that we begin to realize who we are, who the world is around us. It's through your name that all meaning is given. All meaning is assigned to everything in creation. And so, Lord, help us to be a people of worship. Where we can do it better, give us insight where our worship is focused on us rather than on you and how we relate to you, change our worship. Show us how. Teach us to be a people who are principally committed to calling on your name, being transformed, and then living that transformation in the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.